1. What is overpopulation? Increasingly, modern man has come to believe that he faces a serious problem in the near future because of the so-called population explosion. The world, he is told, is running out of room and out of food for man, and as a result, drastic measures may be necessary in order to prevent disaster. Before the question, does the world face overpopulation, can be answered, another question must be faced. What is overpopulation? Perhaps the best answer to this latter question is that overpopulation is an imbalance between the number of people living and their food supply, which results in hunger and even famine, because the available production of food cannot match the population's needs. In terms of this definition, it must be recognised that the world has had the problem of overpopulation several hundred times at least, and probably almost consistently during much of its history. This ancient problem of overpopulation can best be understood by a few illustrations, and first of all, its history in North America. North America had a continuing problem of overpopulation before the coming of the white man. The Indian population was small, perhaps at most 250,000 to 300,000, and perhaps even less than half that number. Nevertheless, overpopulation was a continual problem, and it led to hunger, famine and cannibalism. The very word cannibal comes from the Americas. It is derived from the Spanish cannibales, which came from the Carib Galina and Galibi, literally, strong men, that is, those who practiced it. Both among the tribes contacted by Columbus and in the areas now part of the United States, cannibalism was fairly prevalent. Its purpose was certainly often religious and magical, but it was also clearly economical as well, often dictated by the shortage of food. Among some tribes, its magical use continued into the 19th century. From time immemorial, these skiddy ponies had offered a human sacrifice to the morning star each spring in order to ensure the success of their crops of corn, beans and pumpkins. The victim was always a prisoner of war, and usually a pure young woman. She was treated kindly by her captors and kept in ignorance of her face until the morning she was led, painted from head to foot in sacred red and black colours, to a scaffold in the centre of the village, tied to the crossbars, and, just as the morning star appeared in the sky, killed by a medicine arrow shot through her heart. This is clearly a case of human sacrifice. Human sacrifice was often accompanied by a ritual act of cannibalism. But there also existed extensive cannibalism as a remedy for hunger. Indian cannibalism is very little reported or studied. Older Indians who recalled it were unwilling to discuss readily a subject which brought much disrepute to them. Modern writers, prone to a romantic view of the Indians, tend to mention it only in passing, and then to justify it by unfavourable references to cruelty in Western civilization. Most general works give us only a brief, passing reference to such facts as this, concerning a South American people. Some of the many bands of Tupian people bred their women to captives of war and raised the resultant children like veal calves for butchering. In most cases, however, cannibalism for economic reasons was a last resort, although not an uncommon last resort. Why were the Indians hungry when they had the wealth of the Americas at their disposal? The answer is that their food supply was severely limited. A few animals, like the passenger pigeon, were seasonally plentiful, but they were not always available. 
Before the white man brought the horse and the gun to the Indians, buffalo were much more difficult to hunt and smaller game were normally depended on. In forested areas, game was scarce. Living off the land is a poor way to live and makes only a marginal and precarious existence possible. It was rarely done by white men. The fur trappers went into the wilderness with food and equipment as their capital. A grub stick made survival possible. Settlers moved out in large groups, with at least two years' income as capital to clear, plant and develop the soil. As the settlers developed the soil, the nearby game increased because the food supply increased. Game drew close to settlements and multiplied, and Indians drew close to settlers to get the game as well as the settlers' produce and animals. The coming of the white man increased the food supply because the white man developed the earth. Here is the key to the problem. The total Indian population in North America was not greater than many an average-sized American city, and yet the Indians were unable to produce enough food to avoid famine. Some counties in California today produce more food than perhaps the Indians of North, South and Central America ever saw in a year. For hunting tribes, famine was a normal thing. From the Abnaki of Maine through the Mi'kmaq of Nova Scotia and the Montagnier and Nascapi of Quebec and Labrador, hunger was increasingly a part of life and legend, in direct proportion as farming dwindled and hunting became the only gainful occupation. Even in a country teeming, as the saying goes, with game, the chase is bound to be a shaky provider, there being nothing stable about a supply of wild meat. Agriculture, then, was a preventative to famine, but it was not a certain preventative. Repeatedly, the farming peoples of Europe have undergone famine. Thus, in England alone, during the 13th century, hunger and famine struck in 1203, 1209, 1224, 1235, 1239, 1243, 1257, 1258, 1271, 1286, 1289, 1294, 1295, and 1298. In 1258, for example, it was reported that the poor ate the bark of trees and horse flesh, and that 20,000 starved in London, which was the report also for 1235. In 1239, we are told that people ate their children, and 1286, a 23-years famine began, with the years cited above being simply the severest years. The Plymouth Colony in New England faced famine immediately as a result of its farming. The cause for this is stated candidly by Bradford. It was the socialistic system of farming which created the famine. At length, after much debate of things, the governor, with the advice of the chiefest among them, gave way that they should set corn every man for his own particular, and in that regard, trust to themselves, in all other things, to go on in the general way as before, and so assign to every family a parcel of land, according to the proportion of their number for that end, only for present use, but made no division for inheritance, and ranged all boys and youths under some family. This had very good success for it made all hands very industrious, so as much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been by any means the governor or any other could use, and saved him a great deal of trouble, and gave far better content. The women now went willingly into the field, and took their little ones with them to set corn, which before would allege weakness and inability, whom to have compelled, 
would have been thought great tyranny and oppression. The experience that was had in this common course and condition tried sundry years, and that amongst godly and sober men, may well evince the vanity of that conceit of Plato's and other ancients applauded by some of later times, that the taking away of property and bringing in community into a commonwealth would make them happy and flourishing, as if they were wiser than God. For this community, as far as it was, was found to breed much confusion and discontent, and retard much employment that would have been to their benefit and comfort. The problem at Plymouth Plantation was thus a restrictive form of farming, one imposed from London, which undercut initiative and production. Basic to sound farming, therefore, is freedom from status controls. As Montesquieu observed, Countries are not cultivated in proportion to their fertility, but to their liberty. Not nature, but man is the major cause of famine. Natural disasters such as storms, droughts and frost can indeed destroy crops, but their effect is local, not total. Free production elsewhere can alleviate a shortage in a stricken area. In 1967, killing frosts in the San Joaquin Valley of California in some cases destroyed all the fruit on many farms. Farms sometimes within sight of a devastated farm came through the frost with minor damage. Some produce was in short supply, but other produce supplied the lack by bumper crops. Farms whose crops were destroyed did not starve. Those who had savings used them to weather the year. Any wives went to work to alleviate the financial crisis. The uses of freedom in industry saw these farmers through a crisis without any famine, nor with any proclamation of a national disaster calling for federal funds. Walford listed, among the causes of famine, the following factors which are of particular significance. 1. The prevention of cultivation or the willful destruction of crops. 2. Defective agriculture caused by communistic control of land. 3. Governmental interference by regulation or taxation. 4. Currency restrictions, including debasing the coin. The world, during its least populous eras, suffered most from hunger and famine. As status controls receded in the 19th century, hunger also began to recede, and Western civilization increasingly saw famine banished and hunger successfully dealt with. A far greater population enjoyed far greater supplies of food. The reason for this increased supply of food was not simply technology nor the Industrial Revolution. The application of technology to Russian farming since 1917 has not seen an increase in the food supply. On the contrary, food production has declined, and the Ukraine, once the breadbasket of Europe, has been unable to feed the Soviet Union. Technology has not increased the food supply of Red China nor any other socialist regime. The reason for the increased supply of food was the growth of freedom. Now, thanks to socialism, famine again stalks the earth. Like a horse and carriage, socialism and hunger inevitably go together. As a result, much of Eastern Europe, once a granary in its own right, lives off US surpluses, while the fertile farmlands of Algeria, which produce so bountifully for the hard-working colon, have turned barren. In the United States, as a result of the increasing socialistic controls of farming, food production is declining to the point that civil government officials can speak of future food problems and a conservative writer can describe the policy as planned famine. 
The answer then to our problem is in essence this. Socialism always creates ultimately an imbalance between the number of people living and their food supply, which results in hunger or famine. There is, in this sense, therefore, always a problem of overpopulation under socialism. Hunger is chronic and endemic to socialism. Socialism, moreover, affects both the food supply by limiting it and also the population by both expanding it at one stage and limiting it at another. Socialism grows in a country by catering to a group or to various groups by subsidies. These subsidies penalise the taxpayers for the benefit of favoured groups who are termed, quote, needy, end quote, but are now, in actuality, an undeservedly privileged group. A subsidised group experiences a, quote, population explosion, end quote, being released from the responsibility of work. It lacks inhibitions and feels no constraint about rapid increase. Since more children may be a means of increased subsidy, the inhibition of financial accountability and responsibility is removed. Absorption with sex and irresponsible sex are products of a welfare economy. Zoo animals have a different sexuality than do wild animals. A zoo is a welfare economy. And the zoo animals are privileged and enslaved animals. A welfare economics gives a privileged and enslaved status to a segment of the population. Again, America gives us a familiar and telling illustration. The American Negro, under slavery, existed in a welfare economy because slavery is a form of welfare economics. The possession of slaves gave social status, but it was not an economic asset. The slave gained cradle degree of security for a minimum of work. His living conditions were sometimes good and sometimes bad, but, on the whole, far superior to those of the peoples of Red China and the Soviet Union. A comparison of the census figures with respect to free and slave Negroes through 1860 is instructive. Census of 1790, free coloured, 59,466. Slaves, 697,897. 1800, free coloured, 108,395. Increase, 82.8%. Slaves, 839,041. Increase, 29.97. 1810, free coloured, 186,446. Increase, 72%. Slaves, 1,109,364. Increase, 33.4%. 1820. Free coloured, 233,524. Increase, 25.33%. Slaves, 1,538,038. Increase, 28.79%. 1830. Free coloured, 319,599. Increase, 36.87%. Slaves, 2,009,043. Increase, 30.61%. 1840. Free coloured, 386,303. Increase, 20.87%. Slaves, 2,487,455. Increase, 23.81%. 
1850, free colored, 443,449, increase 12.46%. Slaves, 3,204,313, increase 28.82%. 1860. Free coloured, 482,122. Increase, 10.97%. Slaves, 3,953,587. Increase, 23.38%. These figures need qualification by a number of important facts. First, the slave population was, at first, increased by the importation of slaves but Congress banned the slave trade in 1807 in terms of the constitutional provision, Article 1, Section 9, which barred Congress from banning the importation of slaves prior to 1808, but made possible legislation thereafter. The number of slaves smuggled in thereafter was not great. Second, the slave population was regularly decreased by the freeing of slaves and by the escaping of slaves. That this was a substantial decrease, the table of, quote, free coloured, end quote, indicates. By 1860, one out of eight Negroes in the United States was a free Negro, and this fact does not include Negroes who left slavery in America as well to enter Canada, the West Indies, Liberia by resettlement, and to join Indian tribes. Third, the slave Negro population was increased between 1849 and 1850, by the admission of Texas to the Union. The increase prior to the admission of these slaves was 23.81% and, a decade after the census of 1850, settled back again to 23.38%. Previous increases were higher. Thus, with the various forms of losses included, it is clear that the slave birth rate was high. Comparison with the white birth rate prior to 1860 is difficult because immigration added so heavily to the white population. The total population, inclusive of Negroes and immigrants, rose from 3,929,214 in 1790 to 31,443,321 in 1860. In 1860, the foreign-born numbered 4,096,753, a high percentage. Add to this their children and those born of immigrants who had come earlier and died prior to the 1860 census, and the effect of immigration on the white census is marked. The, quote, free coloured, end quote, statistics are, first, given an artificial increase, that is, one not dependent on birth rate, by the regular addition of freed slaves and escaped slaves. Second, as time went on, and the free Negro became a separate group whose increase became less dependent on the freeing of slaves owned by Northerners, the percentage of increase dropped markedly. Third, the birth rate for free Negroes was markedly lower than for slaves, and the death rate for free Negroes was markedly higher. Thus, in Boston, for the five-year period ending in 1859, the city registrar reported, The number of coloured births was one less than the number of marriages, and the deaths exceeded the births in the proportion of nearly two to one. In Philadelphia, for the last six months of 1860, there were 148 births against 306 deaths among the free coloured. Town and country statistics were more favourable for the free Negro, but the mortality rate was still high, and in Rhode Island and Connecticut, the deaths exceeded the births. The census report, 
surveying all areas, concluded, In a simple statement, when viewed apart from the liberations or manumission in the southern states, the aggregate free coloured in this country must represent nearly what is termed a stationary population, characterised by an equality of the current births and deaths. The census of 1860 estimated that the total population of the United States would reach about 100 million by 1900, but it estimated that, with emancipation likely due to the start of the Civil War, so many Negroes will be transferred from a faster to a slower rate of increase that nine millions of the coloured in the year 1900 appears a large estimate. The Negro population in 1900 reached 8 million, 833,994, the total population 75,994,575. There was thus a marked decline in the ratio of the coloured population after 36 years of freedom. Slavery, as a welfare economy, had encouraged the birth rates. The further the Negro left behind slavery and plantation patronage, the more its population statistics indicated a declining birth rate. The following statistics are revealing. 1860. White, 26,922,537. Negro, 4,441,830. Indian, 44,021,000. Total, 31,443,321,000. White, 66,809,196. Negro, 8,833,994. Indian, 237,196. Total, 75,945,000. Total, 122,775,046. 1960. White, 158,831,732. Negro, 18,871,831. Indian, 523,591. Total, 179 million. 323,175. The above statistics do not list Chinese, Japanese and other groups. The Indians are included to indicate that an Indian population greater than ever existed in pre-Columbian America now lives with millions of Americans without famine. Indian America was overpopulated. Modern white America is not. The statistics are also important in that they show the marked decline in the ratio of Negroes to whites from 1860 to 1930. The Indians showed some increase in the same time because the reservation system provided them with a welfare economy. The census of 1860 did not include Western Indians, but their numbers at that time were limited in the West. Their strong resistance has created the illusion of great numbers in men's minds. The Negro ratio declined to 1930, but returned to about the same ratio as 1860 
1960. In other words, a generation of welfare, beginning with the New Deal of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, provided a return to the subsidised conditions of the Negro in 1860. Thus, a welfare economy, up to a point, increases a segment of the population. Whether in ancient Rome or modern America, this increase is of the worst segment of the population in ability, intelligence and character. The worst elements of the Negro populations are subsidised to the detriment of the non-subsidised whites and Negros. In 1965, in the cities, nearly one-fourth of Negro women who have been married were now divorced or separated, as against a 7.9% rate for white women. Nearly one out of every four Negro babies born was illegitimate, a Negro illegitimacy rate of 23.6%, as against a white rate of 3.07%. More than half of all Negro children in 1965 were helped by federal state aid to dependent children, as against an 8% rate for white children. The birth rate for Negros was 40% higher than for whites, so that it was estimated that by 1972, Negros will make up one-eighth of the US population. The situation since 1965 has become rapidly worse. However, with full socialism, the need to gain votes by subsidy gives way to totalitarian controls over all the people, and population figures then show a frequent decline. Population figures for the USSR are estimates only, in that the data is carefully guarded by that state, and the indications of population decline and famine are many. The answer to the question, what is overpopulation, is that it is an imbalance between the number of people living and their food supply. This is a condition the world has faced during most of its history. As a result, we can answer the question, does the world face overpopulation? that it indeed does face overpopulation, hunger and famine progressively as it becomes more and more socialistic. Socialism has a poor record when it comes to eliminating problems. Its answer adds up to eliminating people. In fact, one of socialism's major and chronic problems is simply people. Socialism, on the one hand, destroys production and, on the other, breeds up the least desirable elements. Its answer is to find the people at fault. Socialism always faces overpopulation. A free economy does not.